Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Just before recording my episode last week, I did something rather exciting. Heather Tesco of the Renaissance English History Podcast is organizing an online event called the Tudor Summit, a two-day online event bringing together Tudor history enthusiasts from all over the world to connect with each other and to listen to interviews and lectures from some of the leading Tudor history historians, bloggers, and... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Podcasters, and one of those is me. It was a lot of fun, and I didn't spend too much time, I think, talking about how much I love Catherine Howard who, despite what I said in the chat episode with Elizabeth Norton, could be my new favourite wife. I know, controversial. The whole thing is free, and you should all totally check it out. Just head over to Heather's website, englandcast.com forward slash Tudor Summit 2017. That is englandcast.com forward slash Tudor Summit 2017 to sign up. I'll put it all up on the Facebook and Twitter as well. I'd also like to thank my latest Patreon supporter, Marianne. Welcome to the team, Marianne. I'm so grateful for your help. Remember, if you'd like to join her and all my other amazing Patreon supporters, please go to patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast. And while I'm at it, don't forget to leave a review for the podcast on iTunes. Now that we're leaving the Tudors, we need to make sure we keep all the new listeners coming. The more reviews, the greater we all look. 
well, mostly me, but you guys look more and more discerning with each one as well. And if you're listening, a shout out to Baltimore Raven, who left a very generous one. To all you new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Supplemental, Elizabeth Suter's Dudley and Deborah. When Elizabeth I came to the throne in 1558, after the death of her sister, she took control of a realm that was disunited. Her accession was not disputed, but things were fraught. The religious tensions stirred up by first her father and then her two siblings meant that there was a fractious and tense atmosphere at court. Let's not forget that similar conditions in France would lead to the wars of religion. Elizabeth has many famous speeches and quotes attributed to her. But in many ways, the most interesting of them all came at Hatfield three days after she became queen, where, in a way, she sets out her manifesto. It's a very impressive address, but for our purposes, the most important bit comes at the beginning. Quote, My lords, the laws of nature moveth me to sorrow for my sister. The burden that is fallen upon me maketh me amazed. And yet, considering I am God's creature, ordained to obey his appointment, I will thereto yield, desiring from the bottom of my heart that I may have assistance of his grace to be the minister of his heavenly will in this office now committed to me. And as I am but one body naturally considered, though by his permission a body politic to govern, so I shall desire you all, my lords, chiefly you of the nobility, everyone in his degree and power, to be assistant to me, that I with my ruling and you with your service may make a good account to almighty God and leave some comfort to our posterity in earth. In case you missed it, here Elizabeth is talking about having two bodies. One is her terrestrial womanly body, the one she refers to being naturally considered. This is one prone to weakness, desire and illness. But she also has another, a body politic as she calls it, one fit to govern the kingdom. She vows in this speech that the two bodies will be united within her, the woman and the ruler. Throughout her reign, she never forgot these sentiments. While her natural body may have had its own desires, the body politic was also there, demanding that she do what was best for the kingdom. Elizabeth I reigned for 44 years, from the age of 25 right up to 69. Her reign has many highlights, hugely consequential happenings that still resonate with and affect England and Britain to this day. But in these two supplementals, we're going to deal with just one aspect of her life. Her marriage, or rather, her refusal to take a husband. The image of the Virgin Queen is one that she very much promoted, and is one that survives to this day. It was used in iconography and propaganda, and displayed a woman of purity, wedded to her people rather than some dude. Yet throughout her life, there were men who sought to have her, to take advantage of her gender and position as queen for their own ends. For that is what marriage was back then, a business transaction for mutual advantage, or at least someone's. England had not had a bachelor, or indeed a bachelorette monarch, since William II in the late 11th century. Some had had periods where they were unmarried, but none had made a deliberate decision to remain unwed. Yet you can argue that it was Elizabeth's duty to marry. She was the end of the Tudor line, no one else from her close family still lived. 
According to the terms of Henry VIII's will, if all his children died childless, the crown would skip the family of his sister Margaret, who had married into the Stuart family that ruled Scotland, to that of his younger sister Mary, who had become a Grey. Now, of course, they had already made their play for power, which had cost the life of their eldest daughter Jane, but everything was still very much up in the air. Any travelling of the crown that wasn't to a son, or I guess by now a daughter, was fraught with difficulty. To secure the dynasty and the future security of England, Elizabeth had to have a child. Of course, the only way that could happen was through wedlock. But here inlay the problem. While there were many advantages to marrying, there were also huge disadvantages. The first was the matter of who to choose. Do you take the traditional option and marry a rich foreigner? That is what kings almost always tended to do. But then look at what happened to her sister Mary. Evidence suggests that the English were more than usually xenophobic at this time, and the experience of Philip of Spain had further poisoned them against the marriage of Elizabeth marrying from abroad. One courtier stated that Elizabeth marrying a foreigner would be like taking, quote, a pig in a poke. So then, simple, marry an English lord. But no, there were equal problems here. First of all, we have already seen that marrying domestically was usually a one-way ticket to trouble. The family of the spouse would invariably rise up and secure all the fancy jobs, leading to resentment and unrest. Remember the Woodvilles and the Boleyns. And it is all before you consider the ramifications of a ruling queen taking a husband rather than the other way around, which is the second problem. You are not talking about raising someone up to be a consort, you are raising someone up to be a king. And even if they are just a king consort, as for example the two Scottish husbands of Mary I, Queen of Scots, were, that is still a hugely powerful position, and would necessarily lead to a reduction in the power of the Queen Regnant. Elizabeth knew all of these risks, and it is because of all of them that she was minded to remain unmarried, the Virgin Queen. But being the most eligible heiress in all of Europe... Her empty fourth finger meant that she was hounded for decades by suitors and pretty boys who sought to change her mind. She indulged some of them, she ignored most of them, she may have even been tempted by a few. Who were these men, and how did they seek to win the hand of Gloriana? Well, here is an incomplete list. Starting with the foreigners, we have Philip of Spain and Eric of Sweden, both kings in their own right. There were also the Archdukes Charles and Ferdinand of Austria. Further down the noble food chain, we have a smattering of dukes, including those of Savoy, Ferrara and Holstein, Namours and Saxony. There are also Scottish lords, including the Earl of Arran. You may notice that most of these nobles I just mentioned were Habsburgs or part of their empire, but as England turned against their friendship with them, there were also some French options, including the Dukes of Alençon and Anjou and the Earl of Angoulême. If that wasn't enough, there were also the English options, These included the Earls of Arundel, Leicester and Essex, as well as the Duke of Norfolk. And that is just the major ones. I could go on for a whole lot longer than that, but these people would just be names. These men all had their advantages and their problems, and each would fail. Some took a very traditional route of going through the lengthy marriage negotiations. Others sought to ingratiate themselves and become a favourite, and used that to lever a marriage. They tried everything. Now, I'm not going to cover each and every one of these men, but I will deal with the most significant. Since there are so many, I'm going to be splitting this in two, as I mentioned earlier. Next week, we will deal with the attempt to marry Elizabeth off to a foreign prince, but today, we shall start with probably the most important romantic figure in her life, Robert Dudley. If the name Dudley sounds familiar to you, then it's because 
They were mentioned briefly last time as being the family name of the Duke of Northumberland, who was executed after trying to put Jane Grey on the throne instead of Mary Tudor. Robert Dudley... Robert Dudley was the Duke of Northumberland's son and had escaped the fate of his father, brother and sister-in-law who were all executed while he was only imprisoned. While in the tower, he met Elizabeth and they appeared to have built a bond. Once they were both released, they began to spend a lot of time together. Whispers began to spread. He was a tall, dark and handsome man. She called him her Sweet Robin and a friend of Dudley's claimed that he said he knew Elizabeth best of any man. On her accession to the throne, he was made her equerry, or master of the horse, a pretty prestigious position in the royal household. Indeed, he was the only man allowed to touch Elizabeth, as he was permitted to help her onto her horse. So why was all this so scandalous? Well, Dudley was married, though to a fairly minor noblewoman. The Spanish ambassador, the Count of Feria, wrote, quote, during the last few days, Lord Robert has come so much into favour he does what he likes with affairs and has even said that Her Majesty visits his chamber day and night. People talk of this so freely that they go so far as to say that his wife has a malady in one of her breasts and that the Queen is only waiting for her to die so that she can marry Lord Robert. He wasn't the only one to suspect that some hanky-panky was going on here. Other ambassadors too reported to their masters that they were intimate some making more lurid suggestions than others. This kind of gossip was really not helpful for Elizabeth, as it damaged her reputation, one that was already a little shaky thanks to her entanglement with Thomas Seymour during her teenage years. In particular, it damaged her reputation abroad, where nobles still sought her hand in marriage. While it's not certain that she had already determined never to marry, keeping up the possibility out there was still very useful diplomatically and so it would have been prudent to try and nip these rumours in the bud. Kat Ashley, who you may remember from the final episode on Catherine Parr, was by now Elizabeth's First Lady of the Bedchamber, and she implored the Queen to do just that. However, her mistress retorted that, quote, No one had just cause to associate her with her equerry or any other man in the world, and she hoped that they would never be truthfully able to do so but that, in this world, she had so much sorrow and tribulation and so little joy. If she showed herself gracious towards her master of the horse, she had deserved it for his honourable nature and dealings. Not exactly a convincing rebuttal there. Indeed, as we will see when I go on to talk about the negotiation with the Habsburgs next week, there is evidence that Elizabeth tried to use the negotiations for her hand in marriage to distract from her true feelings towards Dudley. What exactly the nature of their relationship was, it's hard to know. They certainly shared a bond, and Elizabeth held a great degree of trust in him. Whether their relationship was ever sexual is something that we can just never know. It was definitely suspected at the time, though. Indeed, it was widely rumoured that Elizabeth had become pregnant with his child. There was a wave of arrests around the kingdom of people making this accusation. This was serious stuff as it was considered a fairly short hop between questioning the Queen's virginity to questioning her right to rule at all. The new Spanish ambassador, de Quadra, wrote, quote, If she does not marry and behave herself better than hitherto, she will every day find herself in new and greater troubles. It is a testament to the seriousness of the situation that it became a key topic of discussion for Elizabeth's ministers even when they were away. They had tried to persuade the Queen to give up Dudley and failed. Now they were crossing their fingers that things would not get any worse. Which, of course, they did. 
As I mentioned earlier, gossip was swirling that there was a plot afoot to have Dudley's wife, Amy, killed. It was widely rumoured that she was ill. Some discussed the possibility of her being slowly poisoned, or that she was in hiding for fear of being poisoned. But it was widely accepted that she was in danger. Which made it all the more suspicious when, in September 1560, Amy Dudley was found dead at the bottom of her staircase at home with a broken neck. To make things worse, on that morning, she had sent her servants off to the fair. So, there were no witnesses. Hmm. Very, very fishy. Could this really be an accident? Did Dudley kill his wife? Did the Queen know? Was it on her orders? These are not healthy rumours to have swelling around when you are new to the throne and a lot of the population doesn't like you all that much, or doubts your capabilities because of your gender. These rumours were certainly believed abroad. The English ambassador to France wrote that, quote, I wish I were either dead or that I were hence, that I might not hear the dishonourable and naughty reports that are here made of the Queen's Majesty. I am almost at my wit's end and know not what to say. One laugheth at us, another threateneth, another revileth her majesty. My heart bleedeth to think upon the slanderous brutes I hear, which, if they be not slaked, or that they not prove true, our reputation is gone forever. War followeth, an utter subversion of our queen and country. Okay, steady on here. Maybe this guy is being a touch melodramatic here, but he is not exaggerating when he says that Elizabeth is risking her throne to continue messing around with this guy. It called into question her judgement, and with succession in doubt, this left the door open to foreign interference in the kingdom. But when we think of this from the perspective of gender, this gets more interesting. Kings throughout English history had few qualms about sleeping with married women. It was frowned upon, to be sure, but it happened. Yet the mere notion of Elizabeth even just messing around a bit with Dudley managed to tie up the affairs of state for months. And then the mere rumour without the slightest bit of evidence that Elizabeth was involved in Amy Dudley's death leads to national security implications. Amy Dudley was no foreign princess. Her death involved no foreign power. She was a native Englishwoman, much like Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard. And Henry VIII had executed them, and his right to rule was never questioned. I'm not going to speculate on this historical possible crime scene. I'm sure you can all find all manner of conspiracy theories online and in literature. Let's just say that it could have been an accident, though to me that seems unlikely, suicide or murder, both of which seem quite plausible to me. Dudley, rather prudently, withdrew from court for a month while he arranged his wife's funeral. Less prudently, he erected no memorial to his wife's memory, and as soon as he arrived back at Elizabeth's side, he began slash resumed his courtship of her. While there were some among her nobles who seemed to accept the seeming inevitability of the match, most of them vehemently opposed it. Her ambassadors abroad informed her and the council of the damage that it was doing to her reputation and that of England. And given the lack of concrete information emanating from the Queen, rumours continued unchecked that they may be secretly married or were planning to be so. People made the inevitable comparison between her and her mother Anne Boleyn. She had been an adulterous whore. Why shouldn't her daughter be expected to be any different? So, we've got this far in the story of Elizabeth and Dudley, and it occurs to me that I haven't stopped and asked why these two were doing this at all. Well, the motivation for Dudley was obvious. He wanted power. 
Even if his plan from the beginning was not to marry Elizabeth, as that was impossible while he was married to Amy Dudley, just being the Queen's favourite came with significant perks, such as the ability to sell his services as a lobbyist to the highest bidder, which of course he did. I don't think this precludes the possibility that he was very taken with Elizabeth as well. There is no evidence to suggest otherwise, and much to indicate that he was. But it would be remiss of me not to point out the obvious advantages of being the Queen's favourite and possible future husband. But what of Elizabeth? Well, unfortunately, we don't have a secret diary where she recorded her deepest feelings for posterity. But I think there is little doubt that she was captivated and quite possibly in love with him. She described him as, quote, her only source of happiness, and said that if she had to marry, she would choose him over, quote, all the princes of the world. In summary, I think that she wanted to marry Dudley, and he obviously desired the same. Before it was the fact that he was married that was the issue, but now, surely that he was single and ready to mingle, it was all fine, right? Wrong. The circumstances around Amy Dudley's death were so fishy that it precluded any chance for marriage. Elizabeth's judgment may have been clouded by her infatuation with Dudley, but she was not stupid. But that didn't stop her from continuing to mess around with him, from keeping her by her side, from delighting in his company. And that all just kept the rumour mill grinding along. Elizabeth did at least have the sense not to flirt too publicly with Dudley, but was so desperate to be round him that she would disguise herself as a servant to watch him shoot or have her ladies sneak her into Dudley's residence so that they could dine together alone. It was all very clandestine and exciting. Dudley certainly hadn't given up marrying Elizabeth, but recognised the only way that he was going to bring this about was to gain foreign support for the match. And so in 1561, he sought help from Philip of Spain. In return for supporting his suit, he would become Philip's man in England and seek to undermine the new Protestant regime. This was deeply cynical and Machiavellian of Dudley, as he was himself a committed Protestant, but it appears there was little that he wouldn't do in order to marry Elizabeth. This is all dicing very close to treason here, and it gets all embroiled with various pieces of European and papal power politics that I won't get into, as it all came to nothing when Elizabeth's chief advisor, William Cecil, discovered a Spanish plot to assassinate her and cracked down hard on communications coming in and out of England. In late 1562, Elizabeth I contracted smallpox. This was a deadly disease, and there was a very great possibility that she could die. That would be a disaster, as she had still not named an heir, and there was no obvious candidate to take the throne. The closest in line to the throne was her cousin Mary I, Queen of Scots, but she was a Catholic, and there weren't many in the corridors of power who were keen on that. Groups huddled together at court, trying to figure out what to do next. Eventually, the Queen was elusive enough to appoint someone to be the protector of the realm in case of her death. Any of you want to guess who she chose? That's right, she picked Dudley, and with a big fat salary to boot. There must have been quite some consternation at this news, as she also stated that she, quote, loved and always loved Lord Robert dearly, but, quote, as God was her witness, nothing improper had ever passed between them. As she recovered from this illness, Dudley was the only man permitted to see her, leading to further speculation as to whether this appointment as essentially the man who would choose a successor in the event of sudden death may lead to the long-awaited marriage. 
While she didn't make a full recovery, this near miss had everyone, her councillors and parliament alike, desperate to solve the thorny issue of the succession. England had to have an heir. Parliament sat in a long session when it looked like the Queen might die with no clear heir, with one member warning of, quote, the great dangers, the unspeakable miseries of civil wars, the perilous intermeddlings of foreign princes with seditious, ambitious and fractious subjects at home, the waste of noble houses, the slaughter of people. It was all pretty scary stuff, and let's remember that all of them knew their history. The Wars of the Roses were not that long ago. With the heir apparent being a Catholic, and no other clear favourite being apparent, the return of civil war was very much a possibility. Elizabeth's answer was this, quote, I am determined in this so great and weightier matter to define mine answer till some other time. What a brilliant politician's answer. It did not satisfy Parliament, though, who continued to pester her, leading her to get rather impatient with them. Eventually, a compromise was reached, whereby everyone agreed to let the Privy Council act as a Regency Council upon her death and let them decide the successor. But everyone acknowledged it would be just so much easier if Elizabeth just got on and had a legitimate heir of her own. In 1563, Elizabeth happened upon a cunning plan to solve the Dudley problem and a possible foreign policy disaster to boot. Mary I, Queen of Scots, had returned to Scotland in 1561 after the death of her French husband and was looking for a new hubby. She had been openly considering a Spanish match which could spell disaster for Protestant England, so Elizabeth suggested to her, why not marry Robert Dudley? If she did so, then maybe she could see a path to naming her as her heir. Now Mary and her ministers smelled a great big giant rat here, believing that this was just a stalling tactic, which it may well have been, or even a dastardly clever, if transparent, attempt to take control of Scotland by proxy. Elizabeth's plan, though, was even more cunning than that, as she planned to have Dudley and Mary move to the English court and rule Scotland from there, meaning that Elizabeth would continue to be around Dudley, could control Scotland, even while he was married to a foreign queen. A certain menage a trois situation, I believe, was on her mind. But now I'm just being scandalous. Elizabeth was deadly serious about the match, though, and raised Dudley to the Earldom of Essex, a very prestigious title, in order to give him a more noble veneer. But there were two problems. One was that Mary was not keen on the match at all. Indeed, she had her eye on Dudley's kinsman, Lord Darnley. The other was Dudley himself. He had no intention of marrying Mary, and indeed colluded with her to work towards her marriage with Darnley, which eventually they achieved in 1565. It seems clear that with this attempt to marry off Dudley to her cousin, Elizabeth was firmly closing the door on any possibility of marrying him. But that had little to do with him per se, and more to do with her own opposition to the very condition of marriage. One foreign visitor to the court reported a conversation with her in which she said that marriage, quote, is a thing for which I have never had any inclination. There is a strong idea in the world that a woman cannot live unless she is married, or at all events, that if she refrains from marriage that she does so for some bad reason, as they said of me that I did not marry because I was fond of the Earl of Leicester, and that I would not marry him because he had a wife already. Although he has no wife alive now, I still do not marry him. Now, whether this was the case of the lady protesting too much is unclear, 
But I think it is clear that she was fully accepting of the idea right now that she could not marry Dudley, possibly anyone. But that did not mean that she was going to dismiss her favourite. Everyone else could whisper how they liked. She was not to be cowed. Dudley, for his part, while chastened by Elizabeth's attempt to marry him off to someone else, has still not fully given up and continued to attempt to sabotage plans to marry Elizabeth off to some foreign prince. I'll go into more detail about these marriage negotiations next week, but Dudley had no qualms of making deals with foreign governments in order to make these other suitors go away. But this had the effect of damaging his own cause, as various powerful families who backed the cause of a foreign prince turned on him. This was the case, for example, with the Howards, after he sabotaged the suit of the Archduke of Austria. It is possible here, then, to see some similarities with Anne Boleyn's pursuit of Henry VIII. Though the circumstances, not to mention the genders, are different, in both cases we have a monarch besotted with a noble, but unable to marry them for some reason. This courtier is a severely divisive figure at home, and their suit had the effect of hamstringing national foreign policy. Admittedly, this is an imperfect comparison for all sorts of obvious reasons, but I think it is interesting to compare the two situations. Dudley's final gambit, though, was something that can only be described as a massively convoluted scheme. In 1575, Elizabeth was on a royal progress and stopped off at his residence of Kenilworth. While there, Dudley staged a series of shows and plays to essentially propose to Elizabeth. They bigged up his own chivalric and noble status and had characters that are clear allegories of what he wanted to happen between him and Elizabeth, where male heroes gave gifts and proposed to their true loves. In the least subtle one, a nymph called Zabetta, not far off Elizabeth you'll notice, who took a vow of chastity 17 years ago, the length of Elizabeth's reign at the time, was persuaded to marry by the goddess Iris, in a long speech that extolled the virtues of marriage, followed by a male character named Deep Desire, who wooed the nymph. Classy. Elizabeth, who was not known for being dim, clearly realised what Dudley was doing and was not impressed. She censored some of the performances and let him know that she did not like what she was seeing. This really was the end of Dudley's courtship of the Queen, a fact that he let her know of in his signature manner by putting on a play where two star-crossed lovers agreed to split apart due to reasons of state. That did not stop him from continuing to try and sabotage Elizabeth's marriage negotiations to foreign princes, but that was probably just bitterness. The final signal, though, of his acceptance that marrying Elizabeth was impossible came in 1578, when he secretly married the widowed Countess of Essex, the amusingly named Lettuce Knollis. They had been flirting for years, but it had appeared that this was just to make the Queen jealous, as Knollis was her second cousin. Elizabeth did not take the news at all well, and considered throwing her favourite into the tower in retaliation at this betrayal. Continuing to hold a flame was one thing, but to sabotage her marriage negotiations while married to a member of her own family was beyond the pale. Plus, you know, lover's jealousy. She never forgave Dudley or his wife. Knollis was made a social pariah, while Dudley was placed under house arrest for a time. Their relationship never really recovered from this, though in the late 1580s they did exchange fond letters and he did regain his position at her side. He was with her throughout the crisis of the Spanish Armada, giving her counsel, and was with her when she gave her famous speech at Tilbury to the troops tasked with defending the realm. 
By then, though, he was an old and sick man, and he died a few months later. Elizabeth mourned his passing greatly, retiring to her private chambers and not leaving for a few days. William Cecil became so concerned that he ordered the doors be forced open, as no state business was taking place while the sovereign mourned her former favourite. She did return to work, and resolved to move on from Dudley's death. But when she did eventually die, her servants found next to her bed a copy of his last letter to her, a symbol of her continued affection. If Elizabeth I had ever truly loved anyone, it would have been Robert Dudley. Their relationship was rich and deep and passionate. They shared a connection that was prolonged for decades, and even though they squabbled and fell out, that kind of kinship doesn't just go away. If they had been free to marry at the start of her reign, then I think it was more than likely that they would have wed. But the circumstances of his wife's death and general opposition amongst some of her advisers meant this never came about. But if their affair had been a long, slow burn, her other feeling with a courtier was much more fiery. Robert Devereux was Robert Dudley's stepson, a product of Lettuce Knollis' former marriage. He was more than half of Elizabeth's age, around 21 when he first caught her eye, after he was introduced to court by Dudley in 1587. When his stepfather died a year later and he inherited his title of Earl of Essex, he seems to have become the new apple of Elizabeth's eye. According to historian Anna Whitelock, quote, Elizabeth would grow increasingly captivated by the russet-haired young man, whose youth enlivened her and gave her new energy. Essex was charming and confident, whilst at the same time being stubborn, egotistical, fiercely ambitious, and, like the Queen, short-tempered. The two began to spend a lot of time together, and they would sit next to each other at entertainments. Courtiers noticed her touching him fondly and whispering sweet nothings into his ear. They would play cards alone late into the night, and speculation began to spread that maybe there was something going on here. Essex was a handsome, dashing military hero, and it is understandable that the Queen would be taken by him. Unlike with Dudley, there was no serious thought here given that she might marry her toy boy. Given her age, there was no chance of her producing an heir, and marrying him gave her no advantage. This was really a mid-slash-end-of-life crisis for Elizabeth, and she was enjoying it immensely. That is, apart from the times when they were at each other's throats. Elizabeth was still not at all fond of Essex's family, especially his mother Lettuce Knollis, and was not afraid to speak her mind on the subject. Essex would react angrily to this on many occasions, and would have to leave the court for a time on occasion. He was young, restless, and hankered for glory in the great war against Spain, disobeying Elizabeth's orders to stay at court to rush off to sea to fight the great enemy and bring back glory and treasure. On one such occasion, she wrote to him this angry letter. Quote, Your sudden and undutiful departure from our presence, you may easily conceive how offensive it is and ought to be unto us. Our great favour bestowed on you without deserts hath drawn you this to neglect and forget your duty. We do therefore charge and command that you forthwith all excuses and delays set apart to make your present and immediate repair unto us, to understand our further pleasure. Whereof, see you fail not, as you will be loath to incur our indignation, and will answer the contrary at your utmost peril. This was somewhat of an overreaction, to say the least, from Elizabeth, showing just how much fire there was within her for Essex. This is also shown when he, like his stepfather, secretly married someone close to her, this time one of her ladies-in-waiting. 
Elizabeth's reaction was the same. Temporary banishment from court for her flame. Permanent exile for the lady who had the temerity to marry one whom she refused to wed. Essex spent most of the 1590s at sea, fighting to fend off the various Spanish armadas that were sent to attack England, as well as raiding their trade ships and colonies in the Caribbean. Whenever he returned back to court, the Queen would lavish him with attention, but it was clear to most that this relationship was very different to the one she had with his stepfather. Elizabeth had quite a number of close relationships with courtiers over the years, Swarter Raleigh being a prominent example, and most of them knew not to push their luck too far. Essex benefited greatly from her patronage, gaining position, wealth and high office in the land in return for making the Queen feel young again, but that wasn't enough for the rash, ambitious young man. He wanted more, and provoked scandal at one point when he turned his back on the Queen after she had shot down a request, an unforgivable breach of etiquette. If that wasn't bad enough, he then reached for his sword and had to be restrained. He also famously burst unannounced into the Queen's bedchamber while she was getting ready for the day, seeing her without her makeup and wig and all her finery. The years had not been kind to Elizabeth, and seeing her without all her trappings, without all the things that projected her power and status, was profoundly shocking. This was made extra bad because he was supposed to be in Ireland, and had been expressly forbidden from returning to England. Furious, she banished Essex from her presence, and never saw him again. He lost all his offices, and left court in disgrace. This isn't the end of the story for Essex, though as in the following year, he led a rebellion aimed at restoring his position and place in the Queen's affections. He believed that her heart had been poisoned against him by her advisers, and that the only way to win her back was to do so by force. Sadly for him, his uprising was pretty pathetic, and was easily crushed. He was tried and convicted of treason, and executed in 1601. Elizabeth's relationship with Devereux is fascinating to me, as it reminds me forcibly of Henry VIII and Catherine Howard. In both cases, we have an ageing monarch looking to recapture their youth and latching onto someone who was youthful, brash and exciting. In both cases, they came to regret their decision, as the very things that first attracted and recommended them to their flame came to bite them in the arse. The main difference here, though, is that Henry VIII had no hesitation in marrying Catherine Howard, while Elizabeth did not. By now, Elizabeth's resolve to never marry was firmly entrenched. No longer was there the pressure to produce an heir, since she could no longer physically do so. Her relationship with Dudley, though, exposes a very different side to her queenship. If the genders had been reversed here, I have no doubts that they would have ended up together, probably in an extramarital affair rather than marriage, but together nonetheless. The Dudley match was unpopular at home, not because of his Englishness, because of the fact that firstly he was married, and then the suspicious circumstances surrounding his wife's death. With most of our kings, Englishness was a major tick in the negative column in the choice of a wife, but with Elizabeth, things were the other way around, given the worries of foreign domination, enhanced with the example of what Mary I marriage to Philip of Spain had caused. That said, that did not mean that Elizabeth was not tempted by the many foreign princes who sought her hand. She had sworn to be the Virgin Queen, but things were almost very different. Dudley would be the man who came nearest, but there were many suitors who were not far behind. And next week, we will finally finish off this season on the Tudors by looking at the foreign kings and dukes who sought to marry Elizabeth. 
while she on many occasions extolled the virtues of being the Virgin Queen and worried about the effects that a foreign prince might have on her independence, she came closer than you might think to tying the knot with a foreign prince. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 